you're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. Pretty surprising news broke last week when President Trump signaled that he'd support the bipartisan criminal justice reform legislation that was working its way through Congress. This was surprising, but it also didn't come completely out of nowhere. The long road to making it happen started, probably depending on how you count, 14 years ago. And it's not a straight shot. If you visit our website, christiancivics.org, we have a blog article with a timeline of how this piece of legislation developed, including some information on who the key players were and what the major milestones and setbacks were. And I'll be honest, if I had to categorize this history as a specific kind of story, there are probably some stretches of it that I'd be more likely to call a farce or a cautionary tale instead of a drama. But that shouldn't detract from how significant the legislation being considered really is. In our last episode, we mentioned how the midterm election results had a little something for everyone to be frustrated by, but this is almost the opposite. The First Step Act, as it's called, has a little something for everyone to get behind, especially after the midterms when it came back as something broader and more comprehensive than it was originally. It's not a done deal. There's still a pretty good chance it might not even make it to a vote in the Senate. And we'll update that timeline on our blog for another week or so to keep track of any other major developments one way or the other. But this is also an issue that it's worth pausing to look at a little more deeply, especially for Christians. A lot of issues that get debated in politics, especially when you're talking about politics at the local level, but this still holds true when you're talking about politics at the national level too. A lot of the issues that get debated when we talk about politics don't necessarily always sit the same way to people in different parts of the country or different life stages or different backgrounds. But when it comes to our criminal justice system, the way policing is handled, the bail process, the way cases are tried and sentences are administered, the way our prisons are run, and what happens after someone gets out of prison, these are all things that Basically, everyone who looks at them deeply, or everyone who has first-hand experience with them in any way, all agree need to be changed. How we got to a point where we have policies in place that the majority of people across the political spectrum are actually dissatisfied with is a whole different story. At least part of it has to do with the difference between campaign rhetoric and the realities of governing, a tension that sometimes, to me, feels like it might be getting wider and wider. But for now, our big takeaway for this conversation is that Republican, Democrat, Independent, Apathetic, anyone who cares about the criminal justice system, for all of them, the biggest difference of opinion isn't usually whether or not it's broken or malfunctioning. It's just about the best strategy for fixing it. Most Americans who care about these systems and processes and who have put in some time to become knowledgeable about them all want to see them repaired. But Christians have an extra level of motivation for that. Because prisons and prisoners and a broad definition of justice are all actually pretty central to our faith. 
one of the ways Scripture frames up our relationship to God is by casting us as the prisoners and God as the judge, the defense attorney, and the emancipator all at once. And even if freeing the captives wasn't one of the ways Scripture describes God's work in our lives, there's still the fact that a significant portion of Scripture is either written by or about prisoners. Our faith is rooted in the stories of people like Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Large portions of the New Testament were written by Paul and John from prison, and they exhorted their readers to go visit prisoners, to preach to them and encourage them. So, in addition to that timeline on our blog, I want to share an excerpt from a conversation I had recently with Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, who's the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination, as well as an adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. He's also the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, which is a book that's challenging and encouraging and provocative and I think worth wrestling with for anyone who wants to think seriously about what our faith might mean for our relationship to the justice system. I reached out to Pastor Gilliard because I wanted to hear a little bit more about how he understands the relationship between Christian witness and American criminal justice. If we're going to be responsible members of our communities, active parts of helping to steer this ship of government, then what is our vision for criminal justice going to be? How do we think about and talk about the strengths of our criminal justice system while also tending to and shoring up and repairing its weaknesses? Pastor Gilliard argues that a Christian vision for criminal justice doesn't just punish wrongdoing, but also repairs brokenness and affirms human dignity. We're not all called to the same actions, but we are all called to action for the sake of providing opportunities for rehabilitation and transformation in some way. Every congregation and every congregant has a role to play. Just a quick note, the audio for this interview is a little wonky. Is wonky the right word? Uh, We're still working on what the best process is going to be for us for recording interviews with people who are a little farther away, who aren't right here with us in D.C. So thanks for bearing with us on that front. We hope to get a lot of these questions worked out over the next few weeks. But for now, we're going to jump right into my conversation with Pastor Gilliard as he starts talking about the tension between how our criminal justice system is advertised and the actual results it ends up producing. After the interview, we'll come back together to talk about this a little bit more, including a quick preview of some more interviews we'll be publishing on this topic, and then we'll end in prayer together. But for now, here's Pastor Gilliard. Another really important thing is that our criminal justice system presents itself as a place of really um, providing opportunities for rehabilitation and restoration. Um, But right now, our criminal justice system is really a system that is predicated upon isolation and doesn't really have any tangible uh, pathway for healthy reintegration for people after they've served their time. 
And there are really some dehumanizing realities to our criminal justice system today, where 90,000 people each day are sentenced to solitary confinement, which involves people being locked in a cell in utter darkness for 23 of the 24 hours of the day, given access to human sun, to human contact and sunlight for one hour a day, which many researchers have actually determined is not incarceration, but is more akin to torture. Uh, and you brought up um, the notion of providing more um, transitional programs to help people reintegrate back into society after their sentence is completed. Um, why should we be concerned about that? If their sentence is a punishment for an infraction they have committed, um, isn't the state's interaction with them supposed to be finished at the end of the sentence? Yeah. Um, when we talk about incarceration today, most people use uh, you know, the moniker of you're paying your debt to society. But unfortunately, because of uh, so many of the laws and regulations, particularly for people who go to prison for a felony conviction, they're forced to continue serving time after they re-enter society. So for an example, um, in many states, when you incur a felony on your record, you forever lose the opportunity to vote and partake in our democratic process. You also cannot serve on juries. You also cannot be a beneficiary of any kind of governmental subsidy, be it uh, staying in governmental housing or being on food stamps. But in addition to that, um, what many people don't realize is that in a number of states, if I went in on a felony charge and my wife and son ultimately fell on hard times and they needed to get on governmental assistance while I was incarcerated to help um, subsidize the income that I would have been making as a breadwinner. When I get out of incarceration and I've actually paid my debt to society and I'm trying to reintegrate into society, it is illegal for me to move in with them because they are receiving benefits from the government. And as someone with a felony record, I cannot be in the same household as someone who's receiving those types of benefits. And so it makes it really hard to reintegrate into society without a support system, without your family being able to walk alongside of you um, and to have um, people who are really trying to be community to you and with you. So for Christians who are trying to help uh, be salt and light to the communities we're embedded within, uh, who are trying to help promote a biblical vision for human flourishing. One of the kind of foundational visions for what it means to be a healthy human in scripture is to not be isolated, not be alone. The first thing scripture says God identified as not good was for a person to be alone. But it sounds a little bit to me like what you're saying is a lot of the follow-on laws we have in place that follow people who are incarcerated after their sentence is completed um, actually push them away from any chance of becoming healthier. Yes. Um, and I think it's really because of the reality that our criminal justice system equates punishment with justice. And so we actually think that justice has been served when a punishment has been distributed. Um, and we also consider 
criminal activity as a violation against the state and not against communities or individuals. And because of that, we see a number of times where victims of crime actually want to advocate for a different sentence in many and sometimes a less punitive sentence than what is passed down, but because of the realities of things like mandatory minimums, um, judges don't have an option of actually giving the kind of discretion that they might want to based off the particularities of the case. Um, one of the things that the legislation that was announced this week does is change the length and approach to mandatory minimums. Um, can you just take a quick moment to explain what are mandatory minimums? So mandatory minimums are laws that say that if a crime fits a certain category, the judge has no choice but to pass down this level of sentencing, um, this nature of severity. So for example, there are certain crimes that regardless of what else might have been going on around it, uh, contextually, a judge has to pass down a minimum of a 25-year sentence. You're actually starting to see this ethical crisis um, occur within uh, the judiciary in a way that we hadn't seen before. Uh, we're seeing judges actually step down from the bench because they're saying that their hands are tied because of mandatory minimums and they have no choice but to enact an injustice because they can't take the context of the crime seriously in sentencing. And I think that wrestling from judges uh, really stems from some of the ways in which mandatory minimums have bred uh, these grotesque disparities uh, racially. I think the most popular um, disparity uh, that most people might have heard of is the disparity that exists between crack and powder cocaine sentencing. The only real difference is that crack is supposed to have a more intense but shorter high, and powder has a, a little bit less intense but longer high up until 2010 for the exact same amount of crack and powder cocaine, the person who used crack would get a hundred times more severe sentence than the person who used powder, even though it's the same substance. Um, uh, Barack Obama said that in 20, 2010 that he was going to fix that disparity, but he only fixed it partially. And in, with the Fair Sentencing Act, he moved the disparity down from 101 to 18 to 1. But presently, there's still an 18 to 1 disparity that sits on the books. Most Professionals in the field say that there's nothing that uh, would legitimate that kind of disparity. And while that disparity is not racial in um, its language or verbiage, we actually know that practically disproportionately crack is used by black and brown people and powder is used more by Caucasians. And so you actually have this racial disparity where we see the number of Black people who are incarcerated having grotesque disparities. Right now, Black men represent 6.5% of the U.S. population, but 40.2% of the U.S. incarcerated population. But part of the reason why that disparity is so grotesque is because when Black people have been sentenced, i.e. like the disparity between crack and powder, they have been more punitively sentenced and they actually end up spending more time behind bars, longer time behind bars for the same offense. Even if they're sentenced at the same rate, 
they're not going to be incarcerated at the same rate because their incarcerations will be longer. Exactly. One of the imperatives that Christians are implored to do in the New Testament is visit those who are imprisoned. Hmm. Um, I know you're very involved with a ministry to um, people who are in prison. I was wondering if you can share a little bit about what that ministry is and um, a little bit more about what is the character of Christian faith that you see when you're visiting and ministering to people who are incarcerated? Yes, so I am connected to a program in North Park Theological Seminary here in Chicago, where we partner with a Stateville Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security men's prison. Um, And we go in and the seminary creates a combined learning community where half of the students in a classroom are seminarians who are being trained for pastoral ministry and the other half are men who are serving time behind bars. Um, And within this combined learning community, you take courses together, you seek degrees together, and uh, we now offer a full-blown master's program for men who are behind bars. And what you find is that the stigmatization and the stereotypes and assumptions that both groups make about one another are challenged in the midst of this communion, this common learning environment. Um, And you find that the stigmatization that many of the seminarians had about who was in prison, why they were in prison, and the ethical nature of every, the sweeping indictments we kind of make about the ethical nature of everyone behind bars are really challenged, especially when we're in class and we're reading the word and you see men who are behind bars literally quoting scriptures in ways that seminarians could never even dream of. Myself, I could never even dream of. I mean, the the way and the intensity and the intimacy that many of these men have in their relationship with Christ and their ability to be able to uh, quote scripture, chapter and verse um, is really humbling. Um, but I think also in addition to that, uh, what we see is that there are a number of men who sincerely and authentically regret the choices that they've made or the one choice that they made um, that led them um, behind bars. And many of them have found Christ um, behind bars. And many of them are so zealous for Jesus that they are actively disciples who are making disciples behind bars. Um, So much so that one of the things that was really revelatory and surprising for me was that there are actually men who are so deeply discipled in the faith that they're actually being shipped out as prison missionaries to other prisons that don't have witnessing communities. And they're actually starting church plants there. And I got really convicted. Uh, while they're, still, while they're incarcerated, still incarcerated. Legally, how does that come to pass? That's a really surprising and exciting thing to hear. Well, um, when you actually uh, are part of the system, prison transfers are a pretty common thing to happen. Um, So it's not actually um, that rare to have someone transferred from one facility to another facility. Um, There are usually reasons, um, but um, in this case, 
is almost like your transfer for good behavior um, because you are an exemplary mm-hmm. model of what the possibility of restoration and reformation could look like. And so uh, you might be somebody who's a very healthy model where you are, but they believe that you and the chaplains through support and the communal support uh, programs like the one we do or everyday uh, parishioners coming in and doing Bible studies and things like that, um, they might think that you actually can be sent out to be a model at a different community that might be having some challenges in kind of having an example like this for men and women to kind of latch on to and kind of uh, try to emulate. Um, and so um, in these cases, um, there are a number of seminaries who actually started programs like this. So North Park has one. There's one at Calvin College. Uh, Duke Divinity School has one. New Orleans Baptist Seminary has one. And we're seeing this move within um, higher education, particularly uh, religious higher education, where people are starting to realize the necessity of breaking down some of these walls. And they're realizing how much of the body of Christ is actually behind bars. I mean, right now we live in a nation where we have more people incarcerated than any other nation in the history of the world. Uh, We presently live in a reality where there are more prisons, jails, and detention centers than there are degree-granting institutions. And and in many parts of the in of the nation, there are more people living behind bars than are living on college campuses, and so we're seeing the church actually awaken to this reality. And part of the response is, okay, if this is where the masses are, how do we go and be with people in the way that Matthew twenty five instructs us to? And how do we take passages like Hebrews 13, 3, which call us to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated? How do we take those passages seriously and go and body our faith in these kind of stigmatized, scandalized places that most people aren't willing to go? Um, and I think that brings me to uh, chapter six of Rethinking Incarceration. You talk, uh, you give some object lessons of. All right, that was part of my conversation with Pastor Dominique Dubois-Gilliard. We ended up talking for a while longer about specific ideas he presented in his book, Rethinking Incarceration, and about the relationship between prison and Christ's atonement. And we'll publish some transcripts from that part of the interview on our website as a blog post in a few weeks. But before we do, there's another post coming up that I want to flag for you. I've mentioned earlier that we have a timeline up on our website of the crazy story of how the First Step Act came together and won its support. But one of the major moments in that story was the flurry of work that activists did in support of the legislation during and after the midterm campaigns. Next week, we're going to post an article featuring an interview with Stephen Harris, the policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Stephen's going to give us a little more insight into what kind of work citizens and activists actually do when there's legislation coming up on an issue they care about, and why he thinks that that kind of work is important for Christians to know about and maybe even participate in. So visit our website next week after the Thanksgiving holiday to check that out. And one more plug before we go to prayer. 
If you haven't signed up for our newsletter or our mailing list yet, now's the time to do it. Every week from now to the end of January, we're going to be sending out an email with reflections, bullet points, and even complete sample pulpit prayers to help you pray yourself out of the midterm elections and prepare for the presidential campaign season that's coming up. Whether you're just looking for some help getting your head around praying for politics in your own devotional life, or if you want to have some helpful guardrails for when you're praying for the public square with your small group, or if you're a pastor looking for reliable prayers that you can actually use from the pulpit, this is going to be a helpful series for you. These emails will lead you through praying for the health of our political process, for the men and women who work within it, and for the effect that politics is having on our churches. You can subscribe for those emails at christiancivics.org newsletter. Now, please, join me in prayer. Infallible judge of the living and the dead, you've weighed our iniquity and found us wanting. And then you took our punishment upon yourself so that our sentence could be commuted and we could be set free. You saw us justly exiled from your kingdom, and you went into the wilderness to reconcile us to yourself. You saw enmity exist between us and our fellow man, and you came to this earth to reconcile us together with Christ, making us into a whole new creation. You've called us to live out that story in every dimension of our lives, commissioned us to let it be the ordering principle of our lives, commanded us to make our work and our relationships into microcosms of the story of mercy and justice intertwined with one another that you've written us into. There are many ways in which the very practical justice systems in our country don't reflect that story of truer, more desperate, more restorative justice that you've so mercifully made us a part of. But while those systems are broken, you've also made us custodians of them. We don't always wield that power well. We're told to stake our identities on you and you alone to rely on Christ for our comfort and validation and motivation, but we still find ourselves thrashing around, grabbing for things to help us keep track of whether we can be considered good or bad, worthwhile or a waste of time, valuable or cast aside. And whether or not we've been to prison, whether or not our loved ones have been to prison, those often end up being benchmarks we use to assure ourselves that we're part of the good half of society. This thing that was a mark of your prophets, your apostles, and, in the end, your very son, is also something we look down on, something we hide from, something we want to feel superior to. Forgive us for that arrogance. Strike our hearts deeply with the knowledge that the same Christ we turn our eyes upward to is the Christ whose life was a road to the jailhouse we avoid. We get to live because he was put on death row. We are free because he was beaten and abused while wearing chains. As we venerate Jesus, teach us to honor his image on the imprisoned. We know that not everyone who votes, not everyone who works in law enforcement, Not everyone who's part of our courts or our correctional institutions, not 
everyone who writes our laws understands that greater story that you've told us or accepts that they're part of it. But that doesn't change the fact that you've identified us, your people, with captives and prisoners. And it doesn't change the fact that you've given us opportunities to help prisoners in our world experience the same restoration you've promised us. So we ask you humbly, eagerly, and sincerely, give your people and your congregations the opportunities to make that freedom and that restoration known. Whether it's through ministering to prisoners, being ministered to by prisoners, or supporting changes to how our criminal justice is meted out, scatter your people to every corner of this system. We pray that anytime an activist or a lawyer or a law enforcement officer or a politician ventures into this issue, they can be wandering into a great cloud of witnesses who are already there, ready to celebrate their help and highlighting for them the greater story that that help reflects. We pray for comfort and dignity and freedom for the prisoners, fairness in our courts, and healthy cultures among our policing and criminal investigations. Not so that we can be more comfortable with the way our country works, but so that we can see more evidence that your spirit is moving in this world the way you promised it would, and so that we can get a clearer idea now of what your kingdom will be like when it comes in full. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who you've raised up as king. Amen. All right, that's our episode for this week. I want to thank Dominique Gilliard for taking part in this conversation. Visit our website for the show notes where you can also find a link to his book, Rethinking Incarceration. Don't forget to check out our blog now for a timeline of criminal justice reform. And next week for a little more on this topic and on activism in general from Stephen Harris. We'll probably send out a very short episode next week with a little more housekeeping after the Thanksgiving holiday, so keep an eye out for that. And then the next episode after that will be one you don't want to miss. We'll be interviewing Joshua Harris, author of the book I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. In the meantime, if you're liking this podcast, remember to rate it on Apple Podcasts. That's maybe the very best way to help make sure more people find it. Aside, of course, from actually just sharing it with your friends. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. And over the holiday, visit our website, christiancivics.org, to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.